Giles Files, and my name is Nancy Giles. When I Googled your name, it came up Nelson Johnson, then it's Arnold Rothstein, Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, Al Capone, <laughs> Bugsy Siegel. I thought, if you don't know this guy, you think he's a gangster. <laughs> The voice you just heard was producer Nancy Wyatt hogging the interview. And that gangsta that she was referring to, that is actually retired New Jersey Superior Court Judge Nelson Johnson, a bona fide born and bred Jersey guy. He's an avid reader, he's a lawyer, and he's an author best known for his New York Times bestseller, Boardwalk Empire, The Birth, High Times, and Corruption of Atlantic City. His book inspired the critically acclaimed HBO series. Judge Johnson's other books include The North Side, African Americans and the Creation of Atlantic City, and Battleground, New Jersey, which is another real-life political drama, which we're going to talk about later. I'm dying to hear what it was like for you to have gone from writing this cool book, Boardwalk Empire, and then seeing it turned into a television series. That must have been a pretty... It, wild ride. It was, my wife and I had a whole lot of fun during the course of the five years. We got to meet very interesting people and we got to see how the whole process works. It's, it's fascinating. You know, it's very labor intensive. Mm -hmm. When you, you can see a scene being filmed of two people, well, guess what? There's like 15 other people in the room. Well, that's going on. And, and that's all lost on the view. When I say lost, it's never shown to the viewer. So, Terrence Winter's a very interesting guy. Terrence Winter was the creator, writer, and executive producer of the acclaimed HBO series Boardwalk Empire. He's got a personality of like live and let live, but you better be part of the team. And what we saw was, the, and I'm not going to say the name, there was one person who really wasn't part of the team. A crucial remember. person to the project? Well, yeah, this is one of the actors. Ooh. The scuttlebutt that came back to, to my wife and I different times when we would like, go see the boardwalk, go see filming, what, what, she won't be in this show very long. Mm. And, and, and they wrote her out. Yeah. But apparently she was just difficult. Yeah. yeah. You know, like showing up late, not remembering her lines. And, every, and believe me, everybody in the cast that I met were so down to earth and so friendly. As I was saying, I'll do 500 cases a month of rum. Plus, I need, I need to stop you. I won't be selling you alcohol anymore. Things have changed. How come? It's not really your concern. Exactly the kind of high-handed attitude that makes I've it. got friends in politics, highly placed friends. As a favor to them and for my own peace of mind, I prefer to simplify things. Well, I got money, you got booze. What could be simpler than that? That I sell to one buyer only. Effective immediately, I'll be exporting exclusively from Atlantic City to Mr. Rothstein. If you'd like, you can buy directly from him. At a 50% markup. Well, you could always buy from Brooklyn. Beloved. Peg Leg Lanigan. Those patties won't sell to Italians. Sorry, boys. New year, new rules. How does writing a law brief how do you find that different from writing one of your books? Because your writing in your books, it's very narrative. It's, it's dramatic. It always comes from the character. 
Thank you. How did you make that switch and develop that narrative style? Uh, a, a lot of uh, misstarts, a lot of failures, a lot of rewrites. R writing is rewriting. If, if, if you think of it any other way, then, then you're never going to become a writer. You have to be prepared. You can't fall in love with your own words. <laughs> and writing for the court is very different than finding a right for a general audience because with the court, you have, you have a, a single focus, which is getting your client's position across to the judge or to the jury and make them embrace your position. So it's much more persuasive. It, it, there's nothing objective about it. You're pitching. You're trying to convince them, I got the right position. I need you to support it. And with a jury, again, hopefully after a decent selection, you've got a good feel for who these jurors are, and you tailor your message to them, no matter what the case may be. So it's a very, it's a very narrow sort of message. When I'm trying to write a history, I'm trying to be as objective as possible and tell a, and tell a good story that will, that will captivate the reader's interest. And within the story, there's a lot of other stories, and, and there's an overarching theme. But, you know, you're, you're, you're not trying to persuade anybody. Yeah, but, but again, I love writing. Chapter 5, The Golden Age of Nucky, page 92. Nucky Johnson had a passion for Atlantic City's poor people, especially the children. There wasn't a shoeshine boy, flower girl, or paper boy whom Nucky didn't pat on the head and give a dollar or two. If there was a sporting event or another affair at Convention Hall that Nucky thought might excite the children, he saw to it they were permitted in without charge. One lesson Nucky learned well from the Commodore was that the poor have votes just as well as the rich, and if you took care of the poor, you could count on their votes. In Boardwalk Empire, I believe, you dedicate the book to your mom. Yes, I did. And how she gave you the passion for the written word. Yes. I was reading before I started kindergarten because she started reading books to me very mm -hmm. young. And when she would find a book that I really liked, we would read it together slowly. And then she would say, now you take it from here. Uh, and so I had a library card before I started kindergarten. She, she just like fed me books um, throughout my life. Like I said, she gave me, she gave me Irving Stone's book when I was 12. Not exactly 12 year old reading <laughs> stuff, but she, she knew, she knew that I would find it interesting. Irving Stone was a noted writer who wrote biographical novels of artists, thinkers, and politicians, including Lust for Life, The Agony and the Ecstasy, and Those Who Love. My mother had a 19th century education. Shakespeare. I come home from high school when my freshman year, we're talking about Julius Caesar, and doesn't she rattle off Mark Anthony's soliloquy? <laughs> like, Where's that coming from? She had so many things between her ears that she had memorized, you know, different scenes from Shakespeare and different sonnets. And so she just, you know, captivated me in terms of, you know, wanting to read and write and express and look for problems to, to see if you can't explain them. Uh, and so that's what my writing is about, trying to explain things you know, that I think are worth explaining, that decent stories, let's, mm -hmm. let's put it that way. When did you decide you wanted to be a lawyer and or a judge? At the age of five, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. I was sitting in a car between my father and my grandfather and I was talking 
And my grandfather says, Puggy, that's my nickname. <laughs> Puggy, you talk so much, you should be a lawyer. And I said, Grandpa, what's a lawyer do? He says, they help people when they're in trouble. By the age of 10, I had visited a lawyer's office. By the age of 12, I, would, I had you know, seen some court proceedings. My, my mother gave me, when I turned age 12, a framed picture of, of Darrow. Clarence Darrow was one of the most famous trial lawyers of the 20th century and a founding attorney for the NAACP. He defended everyone from death row cases to poor folks, big corporations, big labor, and famously defended the right to teach the theory of evolution. So Darrow, he was like always in my head. In, in terms of becoming a judge, I wanted to become a judge earlier in my life, but I had three kids to educate. So... All three of them wound up going to expensive private <laughs> universities. And so dad's like treading water because I want to become a judge, but also know it's going to be a pay cut. So, oh, 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 that's hey. something I never realized. You know, it, 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 was a, it was a big pay cut. Uh, but I, I, I was thrilled to do it. I was thrilled to have 13 years of my, my career end that way. It was, it was, a, it was a joy. Before the people of the world... Let it now be noted that here in our decision, this is what we stand for. Justice, truth, and the value of a single human being. Do you have any favorite courtroom dramas, courtroom movies? I thought of you when I saw Judgment at Nuremberg. Spencer Tracy is such a complex character, and we get to really see how a judge thinks and weighs on things. And I was a wonderful movie. Wondering if you have any favorites. Uh, well, Judgment at Nuremberg is one of them. Inherit the Wind is, is another one. Uh, the Verdict, Paul Newman and James Mason. He's a good man. He's a good man. <laughs> He's the prince of fucking darkness. He'll have people testifying they saw a water skiing in Marblehead last summer. Now, look, Frank, don't fuck with this case, huh? I gotta stand up for that girl. I, I tried a case as a young lawyer against a, a lawyer in a medical malpractice case where he was called by the local bar, the Prince of Darkness, which is the same name that was given to James Mason. He played the defense counsel. You sworn today that the patient ate one hour before admittance. Four years ago, you swore that she ate nine hours before admittance. All right, which is the lie? And in that movie, Milo O'Shea is such a, such a jaded judge. He seemed to be completely on yes. James Mason's side. Yes. You know, yes. it was surprising to see. Uh, it's unusual. Let's talk a minute. Frank, what would you and your client take right now, this very minute, to walk out of here and let this damn thing drop? My client can't walk, Your Honor. I know full well she can't, Frank. You see the padre on your way out. He'll punch your ticket. You follow me? I'm just trying to help you. When people put on robes, they understand that that robe is to conceal their personal, when I say conceal, to simply cover their personal identity and, and they're now the law. That's all. Ah. And, and, and the focus is not about them or anybody else, but it's about doing the right thing in the courtroom. And, and the, it's the rare judge that doesn't understand that. Even, I don't like elect, 
elected judges. I think it's a I think it's a poor system. Mm-hmm. But even 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 judges who are elected understand. Hey, I've got you know I've got big responsibilities now. People have to leave my courtroom knowing they were treated fairly. Uh, I, I I despite all the stuff that I was doing on the bench, I asked to do small claims as often as I could because I really liked the challenge because you. The people who insist upon a trial and small claims, they are creme de la creme of belligerent people. (laughs) (laughs) They usually wind up settling. And so, because we have a good staff that helps mediate and arbitrate and get get them to settle. So the ones that don't settle, you know they're going to be tough. And my goal always was to get the loser to leave knowing that he or she was treated fairly. I don't think I batted 500. I don't think I did. But, but, but the challenge of doing everything you could to let them know, I heard you. I understood you. I gave proper weight to all your evidence. Mm. And, and so I really enjoyed it. Listen, is that why you think that, that uh, these court shows are so popular? Oh, God, yes. Yes, yes, they are. I wish people could see more of what goes on sometimes in the courtroom because uh, it's a real learning experience. I used to talk with all the juries, jurors after a verdict, and I, yeah. and I learned so much from them, but they learned so much through the process just by seeing how it works. And, and, and I always wanted them, because I, I did about 250 jury trials, I always wanted the jurors to know, hey, the courthouse doors are open for you. If you have a problem, don't go to the closet and get the Louisville Slugger or the AR-15. Bring your problem here, and we'll help you solve that problem. And so that was the message that I always wanted to get across to jurors. And can I just ask about being a judge? Because I guess depending on how it works, sometimes a person's appointed, sometimes you run. How did it work for you? New Jersey system, as a result of the 1947 Constitution, is that all judges are appointed. We have a spoken but not legal we have a spoken tradition of making sure the court is never lopsided so they they definitely keep account of how many republicans how many how many democrats and you don't get into a situation where you have a have a have a court that's lopsided you know it would be so smart if the u.s supreme court would follow new jersey's example Next up, Judge Johnson is going to dive into more of those politics in his third book, Battleground New Jersey, Vanderbilt, Hague, and their fight for justice. Take a listen. Every time I write a book, I have to convince myself that it's a story that, when I say I have to convince myself, I have to be satisfied that it's a story nobody else has, has written. Because if it isn't, you know, I'm, look, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln is my secular god. Of what I write a book about Lincoln, hmm, you know, forget about it. You know, there, <laughs> there have been books written about all the books on on Lincoln, so I'm not that guy. When I looked at Arthur Vanderbilt and Frank Haig, I said, "My God, these two guys hated each other." I said, "But nobody has told the story of how their relationship influenced an entire state." corner, Arthur Vanderbilt, the book-smart law geek who rose to become the dean of New York University's law school and president of the American Bar Association. I'm all about court reform and voter mobilization. I'm extremely legit. 
And in this corner, Frank Haig, a street smart sixth grade dropout. Yeah, so what? Cunning and manipulative, who accumulated a fortune and political power through extortion and lawlessness. Sometimes I gotta break some legs to make good stuff happen. According to Judge Johnson, both men exuded an intensity that either attracted people or repelled them. Both craved power to bend the world to their vision, and both were ruthless. Vanderbilt when he had to be, and Haig because he knew no other way. Their street fight led to legal reform, transforming New Jersey's court system into one of the most highly regarded in America. Battleground was not my choice of the title. My choice of the title was Street Fight. Arthur Vanderbilt, Frank Haig, New Jersey's last great bosses. But I was on the bench. Uh, I chose Rutgers to publish that book because I wanted the academic rigor. They give your work to unnamed historians or, or people who are experts in whatever field uh -huh. you book on, and they critique it. My book that wound up was very different than, than the book that I started out with, and, it's, and I'm thankful for the critiques that I received and the criticisms and suggestions from unnamed professors. Well, they did the same damn thing with the title. Oh dear! So I didn't even have the I didn't even have the ability to pitch, and say, "Well, let me let me talk to you about this title and why we ought to do it." So they chose the title. I did not. But the, the book's doing pretty well among New New Jersey lawyers and judges, and I've never I've never written a book that didn't make money for somebody. Battleground, New Jersey, Chapter Fifteen, Page Two Thirty Two. Thanks to the boss, Haig's name is synonymous with political corruption. In turn, for many people, political corruption is synonymous with New Jersey. Yet other portions of Haig's legacy include tens of thousands of babies born on clean sheets in a first-rate hospital and a generous hand lent to a generation of newcomers, helping them and their families to make their way in a strange land. Frank Haig was a complicated and flawed person, Yet few people have wielded power as skillfully as he did. Given his start in the horseshoe, he has no peer in American history. Will corruption ever not be in politics? What's the deal? There's presently a ruling class that is very happy with the situation. And by the ruling class, I'm talking about large donors, I'm talking about lobbyists, I'm talking about ranking members of Congress. They're very happy with the status quo internally. They may be unhappy with some of the politics that are happening in the nation, but they're very secure and comfortable in the, in the status quo. I think the status quo is only going to change slowly. Uh, and one of the ways that I think we can begin that process is through requiring everybody to serve the country for a couple of years. Yeah. They'll look at the country very differently. They'll, they'll become owners and, 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 and serious participants rather than observers. A lot of people are just observers. Uh, and will we ever get corruption out completely? No, no. <laughs> it's human nature, I think. I'm yeah, yeah, sorry that, to say. That, that's, who, that's who we are. As tribal as it seems like the Republicans 
are now. It, is there a future where maybe Mitch McConnell actually cooperates with Democrats? Or I, I need I need to have, believe in something. I, I'm look. Biden is as old school as they get. In, in terms of being able to work with everybody. And my hunch is he's going to sit down with Mitch McConnell and he's going to say, we're in our twilight years. We both need to be concerned about our legacy. There's mm. things we both need need to be done for the country. And you're going to tell me there's things that needs to be done for Kentucky. And we're going to figure this out together. I really think that's going to happen. Yeah. The person he chose as a running mate, absolutely brilliant. She almost hides her brilliance because it scares some people when a woman's smart and a black woman being smart is even scarier for people some can't people. can't handle it. She has, for me, it's endearing. And I don't know how other people, how other people deal. My mother had an, an, an affectation of when she was a tiny bit nervous, she would sort of smile and laugh. <laughs> Do, have you noticed? Yes. The the Harris does the yes. same thing. Yeah. And, and I find that endearing, but I don't know how it reads to other people. Well, Peggy Noonan, that speechwriter for Reagan, oh. she took her to task for it. And then people on Twitter jumped on Peggy Noonan. She was very dismissive of Kamala Harris because of the laugh and the smile. And Nancy White and I have talked about it, that road when you're a black woman and how you have to like, you know, kind of temper your anger and make it work in other ways to, yes. to work against that angry black woman yeah, trope. That's, you walk yeah. in the room and it's like, oh, yeah. she's, she's angry. She's angry. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh-oh. Right I, <laughs> I mean, just in editorial meetings, oh, Nancy, you're overreacting. Right. No, I'm not. I'm dealing with the facts. Okay, calm down, calm down. Calm down. That's another so one. frustrating. Or, or, I, it's I'm not calm. always about race. Yeah. Yeah, it's not always race? about race. So next up, Judge Johnson talks about a great idea he calls the Universal National Service. It's a really cool way to bring people together and help heal our divided nation. Uh, I really do believe that if we bring our young people together from all parts of the country, they will begin looking at each other very differently. I mean, there are, there are people who grow up in Alabama who will never meet anybody from Washington State. Yeah. There are, pe there are people in Alaska who will never meet anybody from New Jersey. Uh, and so if you force them to come together, they'll see that they, we have far more in common than we do that divides us. And maybe people will start treating each other with a little bit better respect. Uh, it's, it's, we're, in a, we're in a very bad spot in American history right now. Uh, it's a daunting task you almost have to sit back and say okay how are we gonna implement this right a great idea yeah well, how I, do you how do you make it mandatory especially in the climate we're in now yeah with you so know, much division where a lot of trumpers are going to say i'm not doing that <laughs> yeah well, i understand that the first step would be a joint resolution of congress and i have good reason to think that the problem solvers caucus would introduce it to the house if it got a vote, then the question could be, could, you know, could you get a vote in the Senate? In the Senate. My mindset is that if I can get it before Congress, they may simply say, listen, doesn't cost us anything to throw this idea out there. Let's see if there's 38 states that would buy into it. Run it up the flagpole. That's what yeah. it's going to take. Yeah. Uh, 
but but I I do know that I'm going to need the support of like a like a Pew Foundation, uh, the, the Ford Foundation, the the Carnegie Corporation. But with things as divided as, as they are right now, do you really feel like this um, this mandatory universal public service could help bridge the divide? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. It's not the solution. I mean, it's 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 we're in a very complicated place. Uh, social media is a very big problem, and yeah. I think I think we will see the beginning of a solution to social media sometime in the near future. The Common Decency Act has to be amended. Under our laws, social media is treated as a utility. It's not a utility; it's a publisher. And and and. When that law was crafted, it was before Facebook even existed and before all these, these, these other social media sites existed. If you are able to overlay on top of social media the rights of libel and slander, it changes the whole ballgame. Changes the whole mm -hmm. ball. Right now, we're not able to do that. I think we're going to see that happen. And when it does happen, it's only going to take a couple verdicts to get the social media platforms to, to up their game and behave more responsibly. Once the, once the Common Decency Act is amended to begin now looking at them as publishers instead of utilities, the ball game's gonna change and it's gonna change quickly too. Well, that's our show. Thanks to our special guest, author, lawyer, and New Jersey Superior Court Judge Nelson Johnson. Check out all of his books, including his latest, Darrow's Nightmare, the forgotten story of America's most famous trial lawyer. You can find his books on Amazon.com or at your local bookseller. And you can also find the judge's TED Talk called Imagining Universal National Service on TED.com. We think it's a great idea. Special thanks to our friend, the actor Patrick Ball, for his hilarious voices and dramatic readings. We love you, Patrick! You can find out more about Patrick on his website, patrickboll.com. The Giles Files was created by Nancy Giles and Nancy Wyatt, produced, directed, and edited by Nancy Wyatt, and recorded at our luxurious studios in Weehawken, New Jersey. We'll be back soon with another boffo edition of The Giles Files, okay? Media Production.